The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Not gonna lie, it's nice to see your whole faces again. Now I can tell if what you're getting, if you despise or are enjoying the sermon once again. <laughs> um, there's a, a legal aspect of this parable, which um, I realized wasn't intuitive in the first service. Someone actually <laughs> jumped in the middle of the sermon and, and asked a question, which I was like, okay, great. Uh, the, but the, what it made, it made me realize I need to clarify. Um, you might be thinking, well, why doesn't the guy who finds the treasure just take the treasure? Um, because whoever owns the field, the law then, and presumably the law now, I don't know, is that the owner of the field, unless there's some statute otherwise that says the oil company gets the oil or something, you get what's on the ground in your, in your property. So to just take treasure that you found would be stealing because it belongs to whoever owns that field. So the reason the man in the parable goes and buys the field is so that he can be the rightful owner of the treasure. Isn't that sneaky? Um, <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> um, so it's, it's crafty, it's, but I would, sneaky might be a, a touch too far, but it's, it's certainly crafty. But in the old days, so one of the other things that's kind of a historical backdrop to this is that this is before banks, you know, there's no safety deposit boxes. When you need to keep something safe, you bury it. And when we think about the Levant, the, you know, the, uh, the Middle East, so many civilizations have come and gone there, and so many wars and threats that when, you know, when there was someone putting siege to your city, you just buried all your precious stuff and hoped that you'd flee and be able to find it again. So it happened enough that it was like a thing um, where you could just find treasure. <laughs> um, and it was kind of the ancient world's equivalent of winning the lottery. Like in the same way, it's not likely to win the lottery, but, um, but some people do. Same thing with you, you would occasionally come into a field or buy a house and you'd be digging around to put down a foundation, a post for a fence and you'd be like, whoa. So Jesus is talking about something that would occasionally happen um, as well. So um, seeing that backdrop, hopefully I'll uh, make the meaning of the parable clearer as I seek to unpack it. So um, I, in order to kind of get to the truth of the parable, I actually want to start somewhere else, which is um, I actually, there's a line of a hymn, uh, which is, my least favorite line of any hymn in our hymnal. Um, it, I, I dislike it so much, in fact, that when we sing it, I, if you notice, I actually sometimes don't sing this line. I, I disapprove of it so strongly. The hymn um, is Amazing Grace, <laughs> which apparently I have a reputation for not liking. It's a fine hymn, except for this one line. Um, How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Can you think of that line? How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Yuck. <laughs> um, what I can't stand about this line is the way it looks wistfully back to the past, as if it doesn't exist in the present. Like, oh, how I once loved and valued the gospel like I don't now. I wish I did now like I used to then. That's kind of how I hear that, this kind of longing for something, some religious feeling from the past. I think as well as just um, being yucky to me, um, I think this is actually sub-Christian in its sentiment, if I'm interpreting it right. St. Paul tells us to forget what is behind and press on towards what is ahead, which is the exact opposite of pining after the feelings that came with an early experience of conversion. More to the point for today, I think to pine for early religious feelings 
is to miss the riches, pun intended, uh, of the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the meaning that this parable has for our discipleship. Um, the parable of the hidden treasure, like all the parables, is multivalent in its meaning. There's lots of layers of meaning that could be teased out. I actually think it kind of presents a governing concept for a lot of aspects of Christian life. So think about this with me. These are some of the interpretations the church fathers kind of teased out over the centuries. You could say in a way that Christ is kind of like treasure hidden in a field, right? That inside the ordinary looking field of his humanity is his, the treasure of his divinity. That he looks just like any other person, just a regular guy. But underneath the surface of the field is buried the truth, the real thing, that he is actually God incarnate, love eternal himself come to dwell with us. Similarly, the church that Christ leaves behind to extend and continue the kingdom of the Father after his ascension, the church is by outward appearances a lot like uh, all other human organizations, right? full of folks who are half hypocritical even to their own mission. An ordinary field, but hidden within this field is a treasure, like I preached about last week. The Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God who is changing each of us into eternal sons and daughters of the Most High God. We carry about us the indwelling Spirit and also the message of the Gospel. That's the only message that it accurately points to where the exit sign is when the theater is on fire. The church is like treasure hidden in a field. The church is, I also think this is true of the Bible, right? On first glance at the Bible, it looks like this collection of Bronze Age sacrificial protocols, the cataloging of this very, on the scene of history, insignificant people wandering through a desert, some poetry, some letters to some house churches in the Mediterranean, a miracle worker 2,000 years ago, right? It, it looks just like a field, perhaps. There's lots of holy books, supposedly, in the world, but there's only one with a real treasure hidden inside the field. Those who read the Bible with an open heart carefully and slowly discover that inside of even the most field-like chapters, and the daily office takes us through all of them, right? Uh, you know, whether it's planned through the records of Samuel and Kings or Leviticus or Joshua or Judges, even chapters which um, seem very field-like, the voice of Almighty God is hidden within them, and not just in the abstract, but with specific directions to each of us. That's the amazing thing about this book. It's not just some general truths like the Tao or something. that like, oh, well, these are just true for everybody. It's like, no, God will actually speak to your life through these words, through a miraculous process. No other book can be read so many times and so thoroughly and keep yielding treasure after treasure after treasure. I love the Bible more with every passing year it as it reveals its riches hidden in the field. And maybe to extend the metaphor, sometimes you've got to go digging. Right? It's like, it doesn't seem like there's any treasure here. And I think the impulse of the flesh is to give up. Like, huh, Joshua chapter whatever, you know, like some difficult chapter. You, the temptation is to say there's nothing here, but it's always rewarding to keep digging. Lord, what is the meaning of this passage? Why would you have scribes copy this down for millennia to be in my hands today? What are you trying to tell me? Keep asking that question, and he always answers eventually. I think so much of the Christian life um, can be expressed with this picture of the 
treasure hidden in a field. For each of us, when we came to faith, there was like this moment of discovery, right? Whether it was through a friend, through parents, through a church, through reading the Bible, or whatever it may be, um, each of us has sort of tripped over the corner of the treasure chest and be like, oh my gosh, there is something valuable here. I want that thing. That thing, of course, is eternal life, right? No small treasure. And in the discovery, there's great joy. As Jesus says, the man who discovers it in his joy goes and sells all that he has. And I know that that's what John Newton was trying to memorialize in the line in Amazing Grace, the discovery of the treasure. Um, But let me ask you, where is there more joy to be found in just discovering a treasure, which is not legally yours to take, or in discovering and then owning the treasure? That's actually the way better bit, to have it so you can take it and spend it. Discovery might be a thrill, but ownership is the actually exciting bit when it comes to treasure. Imagine sort of how tragic and sort of existential it would sound if Jesus, the parable he told was, a man found treasure and then just went on his way. But I think sometimes that's what I hear when I hear folks sing that line in the, in the hymn and as folks sometimes talk about their Christian experience. Um, and I'm not implicating anyone here in this room, <laughs> but when folks talk about the Christian experience, when they pine for how it felt to be a Christian 20 years ago or 10 years ago, or five, whatever, I hear, it sounds to me like someone like, wait, you found a treasure? You didn't sell everything you have to get that treasure? Because if you did, it's, as, it's better now than when it began, right? That was not the golden era. This is the golden era. And you've got to buy the whole field. When it comes to living the Christian life, the treasure is hidden in the field, and we must give up much, um, Jesus says, all, to attain the field. So let me bring that out of the metaphor. The real blessing of belonging to Christ, as each of you do, the real blessing actually lays hidden in the banality of regular obedience. That's, I think, kind of the message of the treasure in the field for us. The real blessings of belonging to Christ lay hidden in the banality, the everydayness, of regular obedience. Enjoying the sweet bliss of the vision of God. The way, as Jesus says, a pearl collector who found a golf ball-sized pearl would just be holding it and drooling over it all the time. That religious experience is actually not normally attained easily at the beginning of the Christian life. It's the hard-won prize at the end of the Christian life. It's what we're pushing on towards. And the whole process is folly in the eyes of the world. Think about, inhabit the parable in your mind, how crazy that man must have looked to sold his house, his livestock, his wardrobe, everything he could to buy some lousy field. He just upended his regular life to buy a field. Either that man is crazy or he knows something about the field that we don't, which is the point, right? The treasure hidden in the middle of it. Um, And for us, while God, Christ calls a few to literally sell everything they have, this is a metaphor, for each, which is literally for each of us, to give up our very selves, our very life, that we would no longer live a self-directed life, governing according to our own true north. But we'd say, Lord, I'd follow your true north. And to not be self-directed, but to live like a servant. That's the literal taken out of the metaphor. And um, inasmuch as all of us still struggles with worldliness, right? None of us is yet glowing with, with sanctity. I think, at least for my part, sometimes this kind of worldly part of me can look at even my own 
attempt to live the Christian life and it looks a little crazy. Like I'm doing all, giving all this effort, I'm trying to things for this field, right? for this treasure that supposedly is hidden there, this eternal life that we're waiting for at the end of this life. Willing to sell everything to possess a thing, the field, that is 99% prose in order to own the 1% poetry that's promised in the middle of it. But I think that is the only offer of eternal life. The field-like plodding on the path of obedience, which is, um, as we come to know our lives more and more, it's an hourly decision. And it, and it will always be so until our dying breath. An hourly decision. Having heard the word of God to obey it, to, to not do this thing. Not just to do, to not think that thing. And I don't just mean, don't let the thought come across your mind. I love something that's blessed me since I heard it when I was like 19 was Martin Luther said, and here he's just speaking out of the desert tradition of the, the church fathers, that we can't control what birds fly across the sky of our mind, but you can control if you let them nest. I think that's really good. That, you know, you can't control what thoughts just flash. I mean, we're all kind of half crazy. <laughs> crazy thoughts. Can run. The question is, do you, do you let it nest? Right? And so when thoughts which God has said are sinful, like thoughts of um, judgment, vindictiveness, lustful thoughts, um, violent thoughts, whatever it may be, to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to let that thought nest. To not look at these things. To not say these things. To shift my... Um, slovenly body into service of my family and my neighbors rather than just sloth and comfort. To labor in the great art of prayer, which takes decades to get good at. Decades. It's a great labor to learn to be able to sit in a room by yourself with nothing and enjoy the presence of God. We First you acquire the field so that you can have the treasure. I think a lot of Christians miss this on both sides. There's those who I think, some maybe misinterpreting or taking too far John Newton's idea, um, think that you can just seize the treasure apart from buying the field, selling everything and buying the field. And on the other side, there's those who get so lost in the duties of the Christian life that they forget it's for the purpose of owning the treasure. It's not just morality. It's a morality that, to purify our hearts so we can enjoy the experienced presence of God. That's the treasure the unshakable, overflowing joy of knowing God personally. That's why God told us the story of Moses, is so that we can have a picture of what it would be like to talk with him face to face. And in his mercy, God lets us experience that sweetness sometimes, here and there. I hope you've had a few moments. It's not for us to conjure, right? God alone can give it if we can ask him for it, but... But in his mercy, he sometimes allows glimpses, tastes of what, this, what it's like to feel like you're actually looking at him face to face. And the promise is that as we grow in the life of faith, that will become a little bit more and more, and a little bit more frequent. So much so that um, I really believe that if a Christian dies as a Christian, like fully, dies in the right way, and we're all going to die, right? It actually isn't this sort of cataclysmic leap. It's not like, well, I'm living my life and now I'm going into who knows what when I die. That it's like, no, I've been spending, here's what I hope for my life. I've been spending the last 60 years trying to see God, trying to hear him, obeying his commandments in the field. And that with that has come more and more of a sense of his knowledge and his presence. So that when it comes time to die, it's like, oh yeah, this will just be the next step in seeing him more and more and more. 
Right? To go into actually face-to-face -face, what right now is still only possible by faith. That's the great treasure, is that all of this will be with our eyes one day that we are striving for in the field of faith. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Amen. <laughs>